Matthew 22 today. So if you want to grab a Bible, if you don't have one, there are Bibles in the back. Matthew 22, we will be starting in verse 44, or 41, I'm sorry. Matthew 22, starting in verse 41. I'm going to read this and then sort of give some background to 22 because the entire chapter is important. And uh, we sort of took a three-week study on Christmas right in the middle of chapter 22. So I'm going to read and then we'll go over some of chapter 22 and then jump in. A little bit about the Trinity today as well, because it shows up in our main passage, one of our main passages. All right, if you all would stand, please, and honor God and his word with us as we read. Matthew twenty-two forty-one through 44. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ, whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Let's pray. Father, uh, today I truly need you. We all need you. And uh, Lord, today we, we desire your word. May you meet our most significant need with it. May we desire more of you. May you give us more of yourself from your word today. We pray that you'll speak to our hearts and our minds in such a way that we leave here closer to you, understanding our need for you greater, and having a greater understanding of your glory and a greater desire to worship you. Pray that you will uh, grab our hearts, grab our minds. We open ourselves up to, to the Spirit. Spirit, come. And make us holy. Set us apart. Make us greater vessels for your use. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, so we started 22 months ago now due to the Christmas break. Um, and 22 starts with uh, the wedding feast, which uh, was Jesus telling a parable of a a guy who was having a wedding for his son, and he invited a whole bunch of people, and nobody wanted to come. And uh, ultimately, um, he sends out invitations to those he didn't invite the first time. And many people come, and they have a good time. And there was one person who came, and he was in the improper wedding clothes, and he was thrown out of the wedding. And it was a parable, basically, of the joy of heaven and God offering us his joy to us, offering us this wedding feast, offering us this joy, and we saying no to him. And the original knowers were Israel. 
They were the first invited guests, and Israel uh, denies the invitation, and then God sends the invitation out also to the Gentiles, the rest of us. Some show up, and some show up in wrong clothes, and we talked about those clothes meaning uh, works of ourselves. We think we can earn our salvation. We can earn our place at the party, but the party is really only through the invitation of the master. The only way to get in is through the welcome of the master. There's nothing we could do to say, hey, master, I deserve to be here. Only in the master offering are we allowed in. So he was thrown out, and those who come to God through their works will also be denied the joy of heaven. Uh, then we came to, uh, to, there's a big conversation going on now between a group of Sadducees and a group of Pharisees and Jesus. Um, The Sadducees, in between two questions uh, from the Pharisees, asked about the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe a lot of miracles. They basically were sort of like what we would call secular humanists or liberal progressives uh, without any uh, acknowledgement of a supernatural uh, today. And so they questioned this idea of resurrection. And Jesus ultimately responds to them that I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And he's not a God who's dead, but he's alive. And so if this God that did all these miracles in the Old Testament, if this God who created all the people of the Old Testament is not dead, is alive today, he can continue to do miracles, one of which could be the resurrection. Uh, On the bookend of that, you had the uh, Pharisees who asked questions of the law. The first one being, uh, do we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus basically said, you render to Caesar what you owe Caesar. You live here, so there's a balance between being a citizen of this world and being a citizen of heaven. Um, You live in a community here, you give to that community what that community needs, what that community desires as long as it is not in in conflict with what you owe the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Then the second question of the law was, uh, what is the great commandment? Philip talked about last week, the last two weeks. And Jesus, of course, said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And later in in the uh, Gospels, Jesus actually ups it and says, to love your neighbor as I have loved you. Um, so, the answer to these two questions, one was a supernatural question and one was a law question, and that's kind of where we're at today, right? We have, we talked about this secular humanist progressive side, and then we also have, you have the conservative moral side. And what you have is you have one side questioning, does, is God even real? Is Does God work in this world? And the other side, who doesn't necessarily question God, even believes in miracles, but what they are is the man who went to the wedding in the wrong set of clothes. They believe that the way to get into, to get right with God is through my moral behavior, by being good, by being strict in obedience to the law. And what they do is they judge everyone else. They think that all of their pain, all of their suffering, all of the bad things that happen to them are in direct relation to them being obedient or being moral or being good to the law. And Jesus doesn't believe either one of those things. 
And that is why he answers uh, the question he asks now of them in, in a way that's pretty weird if you don't know the context. Um, and we're going to talk a bit about the context so we understand what Jesus' answer is. But ultimately, the answer is you are very much only seeing this world and seeing nothing outside of it, both sides. Yes, they're coming about their arguments differently. They're living their lives according to different principles. But each side is looking at only this world and themselves. And they're seeing nothing outside of it. And Jesus is trying to point them to something outside of it. So he quotes uh, Psalms 110, verse 1, right there in verse 44 of this chapter. uh, Yeah, this chapter. Some interesting language. Can you, are we there? It did not come out right. It did not format that correctly. I apologize. It reads exactly as it should. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet. Uh, the important thing is, is that first Lord should be all capitals and not just the L. Uh, because there are two words used for Lord in the Bible. And one of them is always all the letters are capitalized. And the second is just the L is capitalized. And it's important because it tells us, one, about the Trinity, and two, about what Jesus is saying to these people. Um, so we'll see this. Uh, we'll read a quote for R.C. Sproul about the two lords. This is what he writes. The first instance is rendered Lord with all capital letters. This is the translator's way of alerting us that the word that is translated here is the sacred name of God, Yahweh. When God spoke to Moses from the burning bush in the Mennonite wilderness, Moses asked who he should say that sent him to the Israels in Egypt. And God replied, I am who I am. The Hebrew Yahweh means I am in Hebrew. But in Psalms 110, Yahweh is having a conversation with someone apart from himself, someone who David identifies as my Lord. In this instance, the word Lord is rendered with capital and lowercase letters. This tells us that the Hebrew word that is translated here is Adonai, which literally means the sovereign one. So God is speaking to the sovereign one. Uh, So David is acknowledging both as Lord, calling them by different names. And we also saw in uh, verse 43 that what led David to write this was the Spirit. How then is it that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? So you see a spirit guiding David. You see a Lord speaking to another Lord. And these are our three members of the triune Godhead. God, the Father, in this instance, would be all capital letters, Lord, Yahweh, I am. The uh, sovereign one, the capital L lowercase, in this instance, is Jesus. And the Holy Spirit, of course, is the one guiding David to write about the Lord. And they're talking to each other, Lord amongst Lord. We've talked about this before when we've talked about the Trinity. The Trinity is in relationship with each other constantly. They are always loving and serving the others, seeking the will of the others, seeking to glorify and worship the others. 
and they speak to each other, they converse with each other, they are in relationship with each other. But that does not mean simply that they are three separate gods. In Psalms 8.1, we read that David addresses Lord, all capitals. Did I put this one on this? I'm not sure if I put this one on there, sorry. If you want to turn to your Bible, Psalms 8.1, it should be in the middle somewhere. Um, Psalms 8.1 reads, O Lord, all capital letters, our Lord, L capital, lowercase, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And in this instance, he's addressing them both as one. He gives the one God both titles, and that is our trinity. I wish I could give you an analogy that makes perfect sense, but it doesn't, because we, God is a multidimensional figure beyond three in our three-dimensional world. It's just not something that we can fully understand. Um, just as if there was a two-dimensional world somewhere out there and us three-dimensional figures walked in to it, and one of them might see us and then they, if they go to it, try to explain to the other two-dimensional figures, the three-dimensional figure, they, they wouldn't get it. It wouldn't make any sense. There are only squares in two dimensions. There are cubes in three dimensions. If you've only seen a square and you've never seen a cube, it's hard for someone just by hearing about it to grasp what a cube is. God is a multidimensional being in a triune Godhead, three in one, as fundamentally three as he is as fundamentally one. He's not more three than he's more one or more one than he is three. He's both at the same time forever and always. Um, but the complicated issue, one that we don't talk about enough, but one that we see clearly here. So I want you to understand, when you see the Trinity, it's in the Bible. It's real. It's, it's there. Um, now, on to our uh, importance of today. Um, part of that we're going to see applies to what Jesus is getting at today, but I do want you to see the Trinity when it's presented to us. Um, so, God's answer is, or Jesus' answer to uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees is to ask them a question. Basically, who is the Christ? What does this mean? Um, not necessarily who I am. I mean, that's the ultimate, what he's trying to get at. But when he says Christ, what he's referring to is the word Christos, which is the word that was passed through the Old Testament, pointing to the Messiah. Um, David was promised, uh, ultimately in Second uh, Samuel uh, chapter 7, that through his lineage will come a Savior, will come a King, will come a Messiah, that will ultimately give peace to Israel. Now, David was ruling at this point, and a little later into uh, Second Samuel, even more so, through a kingdom that was largely at peace. Um, they had been very successful militarily. They had won most of their battles. David had set up a kingdom where there was very little threats at this point. And Israel was, for the most part, at peace as far as a kingdom. They didn't have outside threats. They weren't at peace necessarily internally, which we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament as David hands off his kingdom to some of his sons and then their sons. And we see this um, behavior of turning from God, breaking covenant with God, and God punishes and God removes peace in order for them to see their need for himself, most importantly. 
But this is sort of where Israel is. Israel has gone through a long period of, uh, at the end of the Old Testament, it's 400 years, 420-some years or 30-some years, from the end of the Old Testament to uh, John the Baptist, speaking of the coming of the Messiah soon, at the beginning of Matthew. Um, Through that time, there were times when Israel was enslaved. Uh, There were times when Israel came out of slavery. The Maccabees, which is uh, celebrated every Hanukkah, leads Israel out of uh, a, uh, an enslavement during that intertestimonial time. And then we pick up in Matthew, Israel is enslaved again. They're a part of the Roman Empire. And at this point, they're just desiring to be once again out of slavery, out of somebody else's kingdom, to have their own kingdom so that they can have peace again. But they don't understand where peace is found. First um, Corinthians one twenty two and twenty three reads: uh, For Jews demanded signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for Jews and folly to the Gentiles. This verse tells us about how their individualistic worldviews are affecting their view of God. See, the Jews were seeking miracles. The Jews. Definition of miracle, though, was God do something miraculous for me to gain a part of this world, for me to gain something of this world. They did not see God doing miraculous things outside of this world. They did not see God needing to bring them outside of this world. Their life was so centered here and on themselves that their view of what a miracle was was for God to give them something of this world whether it was moving themselves out of slavery, moving themselves into prosperity, moving themselves into a relationship, moving themselves into some type of stature or job or power, similar to us. Um, For the uh, Greeks, the Romans were all about wisdom. And what they wanted was to know what was true and then live live in the truth accordingly. And they thought through the pursuit of truth, living in truth, they would find their peace. And so what they wanted from God was to tell them, here's your list, or not necessarily from God, but what they wanted was, here's your list of behaviors, here's how you live, now we'll all do that and everything will be great. It was all about them. I need to decide what's truth and then I need to live accordingly. There was no room for anything other than me. Um, Keller basically uh, sums up this reality pretty uh, succinctly. I don't know. I, due to uh, the notes issue, I didn't put some of the smaller quotes on there. So most of the bigger ones are, but I don't think this one's on there. But he writes pretty simply: Christianity is not an individualistic, create-your-own-reality philosophy, nor is it a moralistic, save-yourself-through-moral-conformity philosophy. It's neither. Now, neither side can live morally according to their self-appointed truth or their God-given moral law. And neither side can expect simply from their behavior, whether it's keeping their own decided truth or God's moral law, can get the peace that they so have longed for. They're very similar in how they're going about it. One is just denying that truth comes from any type of absolute 
necessarily, or from a God outside of this world. They're saying it's found in this world. Everything is found within this world. There's not miracles happening. There's not miraculous events. God is not necessarily giving us a moral law. But there is truth to be found. And if we live by it, we can live pretty well. And then you have the Jews who believe in miracles, believe in God's moral law, but they don't necessarily believe in the need or necessity of grace or in grace itself. They believe in, it's my responsibility to live right, and if I do, I will get what I've always wanted. Plus, they ask, when they seek miracles, they seek not salvation from this world, but salvation in this world, from this world. God, in his question and his answer, is trying to tell them that they are way off. So, what does this necessarily mean? How does God answer their question? Well, he points to something outside of this world. It's pretty simple. Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. What does that mean? Well, we need to see verse 42 and 43. I'm saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. They answered this way because, again, they had been stuck in slavery for so long that their longest need, their deepest desire was for a second David, was for another David, was for another person to come and save them from the Roman Empire, to come and bring them out of slavery, to establish a new earthly kingdom, to set them apart from the rest of the world so they can live free. They can have freedom. They can be in peace. Jesus knew he was going to they knew Jesus knew they would answer that way because of the promise given to David and the hope that Israel found in it constantly. Plus, these were religious leaders, so they knew the law, they knew the Old Testament, they were familiar with it, and they knew this was the big promise. So God asked them, well, if the Messiah is the son of David, how then can David call him Lord? Why would he ask that? Because in that culture... Two things are true, one that's true now and one that's necessarily not true now. One is, humans give birth to humans. A male and a female get together and they procreate and have a child. It's a human being. It's not something above them. It's not something greater than them. Second is, culturally, your sons or your children in that culture were way more subordinate than they are now. You were definitely under the authority of your parents. There was not the autonomy that there is now. There was not the speaking back to. There was not the attitude of uh, greater knowledge uh, as a child uh, than your parents. Obviously, as time goes on, people mature and grow. But there was always a respect that's not necessarily there now. You were always your father's son. You were always your father's daughter. You were always your mother's son or your mother's daughter. And there was always that respect. You were never to assume you were greater. And so Jesus asked them, this is a part of your culture. This is basic human knowledge. How can a son of David be Lord? 
can be greater than David. And what he's saying is that a miracle is going to happen, that the actual Lord, the Yahweh, the Sovereign One, the Adonai, is going to come down and be a part of David's lineage, part of David's family line. Why is that important? Because what Jesus is saying is you need more than just another David. David was a human king who brought a human kingdom that brought some peace, but not the peace you long for the most. What you need is the king of kings. What you need is the God of the kings of this world. The one who set up David to bring you a little bit of peace here is ultimately going to come and be a part of David's lineage to bring you the ultimate peace. Um, So Max, thankfully, uh, read some of those things for me earlier between the songs, but listen to what Jesus is telling them they don't need. They don't need a good moral teacher. They don't need someone to come down and say, here's what you need to live like. Just mimic me, be like me, listen to me, and do these things, and you will get what you deeply long for. What they don't need is someone to come in and conquer the world through wars and set up a kingdom for them here so they can have all the things of this world that they've most longed for. David did that once. They've had teachings before. They've known truths before, and they've tried to live it out. And it always left them longing. And Jesus is saying, you need to know the king that came down from heaven, the miracle, the truth itself, that came not to simply tell you how to behave, but to be truth for you, and ultimately to be a sacrifice for you. Jesus didn't come to show us how to have a better life here. Jesus is the better life, and he came to give himself to us. He's not simply a teacher. He's not simply someone to follow. He's not somebody who came to give you the things of this world. He's not simply a way to a better life. He is the life, the peace, the joy you've always longed for. He is the King of kings. He is the promise of the king to come, the son of David, who will give you the peace you've always longed for. And it's found only in him, found through no other way. Keller writes this. This will be David's son, but he will be God's son son come into David's line. He will be a divine figure, and a human figure who comes not simply to put down the political enemies of Israel, but the ultimate enemies of the human race, to put down sin, to destroy death, to destroy evil for the whole world. Uh, There's a a very famous scene from uh, the Cosby show back in the day when Theo wants to move out. He wants to go and get his own place. He may live with his friend. uh, What was his friend's name? Anybody remember? I can't remember his friend's name. 
I had it this morning. I don't remember his friend's name. But anyways, he was going to maybe go live with his friend. And he was wanting to move out because he didn't want to live under the rules of his father. And he didn't feel like, you know, home could be where he could be free and where he could be most happy. So, you know, Bill sits down with them and he gives them this, the Monopoly money. Anybody remember that scene? He gives them a whole bunch of Monopoly money and then he says, okay, you're going to have to buy this, you're going to have to buy that, you're going to have to buy this and buy that, and you're going to have to pay rent, and you're going to have to do all this. And Theo basically at the end of it was left with no money and he could do nothing. What God wants us to see is when we seek our peace, when we seek our joy, when we seek our hope in this world, it's robbing us of all of those things. It's taking our money bit by bit by bit by bit. Because the world, like we've talked about numerous times, gives us a glimmer of hope, gives us a spark of happiness, but it always leaves us longing. And so what do we, need? What do, we do? We go and try to get more of that thing. We try to get more of that relationship. We try to get more of that job. We try to get more of the stature. We try to get that next promotion. We try to excel in sports. We try to expel in teaching God's word. We try to be a really good Christian leader. And we, when we do it all in ourselves, and we do it all for ourselves, it leaves us longing because it's not where we were to find our hope in and find our joy in and our peace in. And every time it takes a bit of ourselves away from us. And we've talked about hell. Hell is ultimately a place where the glimmers of hope, the sparks of happiness, the thought of hope itself is gone. We're like Theo, left with nothing. All of our monopoly money is gone. This world's promises are monopoly money because, two, they can never buy you what you think they can buy you. And they take what you truly value from you. Um, this is what we, this is what Jesus is saying to them. You're seeing only this world, and you're seeing only yourself. But I am the King of Kings. I am the Son of David, the Son of God, part of the Trinity, part of the Triune God, who knows pure joy, which is found in the Trinity through self-sacrifice, through not seeking self, through not seeing yourself above anything else, but seeing God above you and seeking to serve all of his creation above yourself. That's where true joy is found. And Jesus is saying, if you needed somebody just a little bit better than you, why is there a Messiah in David's lineage? If you needed just another David, why is there a Lord in David's family? Because we aren't good people who are really close. We're not on step 11 of our step 12-step plan. We don't need a David to just move us that one next step. We needed a David to point us to the knowledge that we need something greater. We need something more than David. We need God. We can try to live right, but we know deep in our hearts that we're consumed by a guilt and an inadequacy that is always there. We can try to pursue our joy in this world, but we know when we grab it, it always leaves us longing. And Jesus came, and Jesus says, Why did I come? 
Why am I in David's lineage? Because I can give you what you've always longed for. D.A. Carson writes this, Jesus gives peace in a way which the world cannot duplicate. I do not give you as the world gives. This is true both because of the distinctive nature of the peace Jesus gives and because of the distinctive way in which Jesus gives it. The peace Jesus leaves his disciples is ultimately independent of outward temporal circumstances. It turns on Christ's atoning cross work and on the trust of the eternal God, not on health, power, prestige, new acquisitions, or new excitement. The world's peace turns on transient variables that cannot engender stable peace. Do you believe that? Have you come to the point where you can honestly look at this world and go, there will always just be transient variables. Until you look at the, all this world has to offer and you say, it will always leave me longing, there will always be a part of you that questions God. Some of you may do so even in your relationship with God. Some of you have not trusted God at all because you still trust the world in giving, finding your peace in it. You still trust the world as the place where you're going to find your joy. You look at Jesus' question, why is there a Messiah in David's lineage? And you deny that there's a Messiah in David's lineage? Or you think that Jesus is just somebody who maybe is a little better than you and is pointing you to just how you need to maybe just behave just a little bit better in this one way. Or you just need to know this one truth and then you'll be there. And Jesus is saying, no, Why then did David call that person not just a little bit better, but Yahweh? Why did he call him Yahweh? Why did he call him Lord? Why did he call him God? Why did he say, there's coming one greater than I? And by greater, I mean something totally different. Not simply a slightly better human being, but somebody completely different. A four-dimensional figure in a three-dimensional world. And four is probably not speaking to the magnitude of the greatness of Christ. It's infinite multitudes greater than we are. That is what David is saying is coming. And this is what Jesus is saying. You need to know that. What does this mean? It means... That we place our hope differently than what we should have placed, what we have been placing our hope in. We seek our peace differently than how we've been seeking it. I, uh, I'm sure that I sound repetitive, but honestly, I, this is what the Bible is pointing us to. God wants us to see Him as our hope, as where our peace is found. It also means that we respond to our pains differently. Uh, When you hurt, and again, Jesus is not saying that here you will cease hurting. He is saying that while you're here, you have the promise of what is to come. He did promise David that there will be a kingdom where peace will reign, and it will come from someone from your family. And Jesus did come to give us that. He came and 
Like uh, D.A. Carson said, turns on his atoning crosswork and on the trust in the eternal God. We have a hope that we've always longed for and this world can't provide it, then we need to ask ourselves, is that because I have false longings or is it because I have a longing for something outside of this world and the God who enters David's lineage is that answer? Does on the cross... All of my moral wrongs, all of my bad behaviors, are they covered by the blood of Christ and I'm free to not live in the pain of my inadequacy, in the pain of my shame any longer? Jesus says yes. Is heaven going to be a place full of joy, full of peace, the promise of the kingdom given to David? Jesus says yes. Matthew 4, 8 through 10 reads, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This was the last of the three temptations Jesus endured in the uh, wilderness. And what the devil was said was, Look at all this world and see its beauty. See its worth. And if you will worship me, I'll give it to you. And Jesus said, I've seen real beauty. I've known real joy. I've lived in perfect peace. I know it's not found in this fallen world. Where are you at in that decision? What are you holding on to in this world What are the things you're looking to here to find your peace and your joy and your hope? Until we answer like Jesus did, we're always going to have pain and suffering, but there will come a day due to the promise of Christ when our only answer will be God. We'll be in heaven someday, and we will love God completely and will live in perfect peace and total joy. Find your rest in that. The last thing is we need to be a model of Jesus' love and peace. Uh, Spurgeon writes this, Saints, show how precious, precious Christ is to them in that he is their heaven. To believe Jesus is heaven, the Lamb is the light, the life, the substance of heavenly bliss. How long to be with Christ, or we long to be with Christ. Many of us could say with David, although my house may not be with God, Yet he hath made me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things, and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire. Christ is to us the covenant, and in him we found the foundation of our first hope, the top stone of our highest joy. Is he not indeed precious to us? How precious is he to you today? What are the precious things in your life? The more it's this world, the less our friends who are deeply longing are going to see peace in us, and the less they're going to consider Christ as the answer to their longings. I don't do a good job necessarily of being a model of joy living in Cleveland. I should, though, because my joy is not found in where I live. It's found in Christ. And I need to be a better model of that joy.
to you all, to the city, to my friends and family. And the more I find my joy in God, the more the peace of God, the joy of God, the rest of God will be seen and made evident to them. And they'll consider Christ as the answer to their longings more and more. The more I will serve my family, my friends, and you all better. Because I've placed my joy in other things, I haven't served you as well as I wish. I hope I do better. Pray for me. Where are you at in being a model of God's joy to your friends, to your family, to this church? What are you holding on to that's stopping you from serving here, serving your family, serving your friends? I'm going to read a poem and close us in prayer. Be still, my soul, the Lord is on my side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change he faithfully will remain. Be still, my soul, thy best, thy heavenly friend. Through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Be still, my soul, thy God doth undertake. To guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now, mysterious, shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul, the waves and winds still know. His voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. Be still, my soul, the hour is hasting on, when we shall forever be with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forget, love's purest joy restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past, all safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. God, be still our souls. Rest our minds and our hearts in you. Lord, for those of us that are still holding on to some of the things in this world, help us to get a taste. Lord, remove whatever's holding us back from pursuing the things we think can meet our needs here. Help us to fail in the pursuit of those things in this world so that we can come to the point where we long for something outside of this world. May the next time we grasp at this world and it leaves us longing and leaves us in pain and leaves us in suffering, may we be reminded of you saying, why is there a Messiah? in David's family. May we know you as the king, the king of our joys, the king of our hearts, the king of our peace, the king of our rest. And may we grow weary of the world as the answer to those things. Lord, we pray that as we worship and glorify you more because of that, You'll help us to model your joy and peace to this world. May we be a people who live selflessly because we are secure in you and the redemptive work of your cross and the promise of your heavens. May you draw people to you because of that. Glorify yourselves to us so that your kingdom can be expanded here. In your name we pray. Amen.